This morning's reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. We're looking at the Gospel of Mark, um, the beginning of the New Testament, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's the record of Jesus, what he did, what he said, how he interacted with people. We've seen in the beginning of the gospel how Jesus taught and gathered to himself disciples. And then you get to the middle of the gospel, chapter 8, where Jesus is confessed as the Messiah by Peter. Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Uh, Christ in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew, means the anointed one of God. And from that moment, everything in the gospel changes. Instead of walking around healing and teaching uh, people, Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem and the cross. And he also begins a very intensive time with the disciples where he explains exactly who he is, reveals exactly who he is and what's going to happen. He talks about the cross for the first time. We saw last Sunday, he said to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If anyone is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of them. And he talks about the humiliation that he's going to endure. It's actually a bit of a downer. Here in chapter 9, as he begins to turn towards Jerusalem, we get a glimpse of something more exalted. Jesus, remember, is revealing himself, his true nature, to his disciples as he begins his journey to Jerusalem. And he said to them, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Jesus is the king. The kingdom is all the people who acknowledge him as king and therefore are part of his kingdom. But here, in the transfiguration, he's going to give some of the disciples a glimpse of the kingdom, what it looks like. What does it look like when you come into the kingdom and are illuminated by the glory of God? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. 
So after six days, uh, Jesus has left the area of Galilee, and he is beginning to head towards Jerusalem. And he takes a subset of his disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain. There are echoes here of Moses going up the mountain to meet God. Jesus is going to show the disciples what it looks like. Now, some people get upset by the idea that there's an inner circle, that uh, Jesus seems to show preference towards some disciples and not others. In fact, you'll, as we go on with this, you'll see we're going to talk about John and his particular relationship with Jesus. The Gospels say that Jesus loved John particularly out of all the disciples. Why is there an inner circle? Well, you've got to remember that the God revealed by Jesus is personal. That means God, Jesus, has a personal, individual, specific, and unique relationship with everyone. God is not some institutional institution that treats everybody the same. God is not some universal law of nature, you know, like gravity that affects everybody in exactly the same way. He's not an abstract idea or a philosophy or a teaching that we can all hold equally. Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is God. And he's personal. What does that mean? Uniquely, in Jesus, we get a personal relationship with an infinite God. Infinite means unlimited. God can give unlimited attention to each individual person. We're finite. He is not. God is not some harried bureaucrat shuffling case files as he deals with us. God can give us his full undivided attention and give us a personal and unique relationship with him. Your relationship with God is not the same as my relationship. Your personality, your person, will draw out aspects of God that I can't see. And he cares about you uniquely and personally. You know, sometimes you will... I've heard it on, on TV and radio where some athlete is praying for a game, praying that God would be on their side, that God would give them a win. And you'll sometimes hear commentators saying, you know, God has better things to do than worry about a football game or some sporting event or some trivial little thing in somebody's life. That is not true. God cares about every detail of your life as much and more than your parents, your mother, and your father. There is nothing going on in your life that he's not aware of and doesn't care about and pay full attention to. And so God had, and Jesus had, different relationships with all his disciples. And this inner core, Peter, James, and John, in particular, they are the ones that become the leaders of the early church. What we're seeing here is the core of the early church, 
the leading disciples being given a glimpse of this future kingdom as a way of preparing them for what's going to happen at the cross. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. This uh, English word here, transfigured, is the Greek word metamorpho, from which we get metamorphosis. It means to be transformed, to become something new, something different. Just as a caterpillar metamorphizes into a butterfly. That's the sense here. We are getting a glimpse of Jesus, who is not just Jesus, the son of a carpenter. This is not just Jesus the man, this is Jesus divine being revealed. A transformed Jesus. A Jesus that lives in the light of God, in the glory of God. In fact, what we're being given here is not only a new kind of Jesus, but a glimpse of our own future. In uh, this letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. Human beings were created to be in relationship with God, to be in God's presence, and in the light of God's glory, we are transformed. By the way, if we weren't transformed, we could not stand before God. God's perfect holiness and justice would burn us away like stubble. Only transformed human beings can stand in God's glory, perfect like him. Or Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's a promise. The transfigured Christ, the transformed Christ, is a glimpse of our future. Verse 4, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Here we've seen the great figures of the Old Testament. Moses, who led Israel out of slavery to Mount Sinai, where God was waiting and gave them the law, and turned slaves into citizens, a new nation, a holy nation. And Elijah, the great leader in a time of crisis, who also goes up the mountain to be with God and leads God's people. Elijah, Moses, Jesus. Jesus is the culmination he stands with the great figures of the Bible and is the culmination of all the stories, all the threads, all the narratives. They all point to him. He's being revealed once again as the Messiah, the one who the Old Testament points towards. This is Jesus revealing to his disciples exactly who he is. 
not just the son of a carpenter, not just some inspired prophet. Jesus is the culmination of all things. In fact, the Gospel of Mark is based on Peter's memories of Jesus. And Peter actually wrote two letters, and in one of them he writes this, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. What's he talking about? Verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. The primary purpose of this event, going to the mountaintop, is so that these three core leaders of the early church can be witnesses to the reality of who Jesus is. But I think there's more going on than that. You know, this is the second time that a voice from heaven has said, this is my son whom I love. You know, we saw at the beginning of Mark that when Jesus begins his ministry, he's baptized in the River Jordan. And as he's coming up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And a voice says, this is my son whom I love. But there... Jesus is humble. He's the one that goes to John the Baptist. He has to go down in the water. He is the one that then goes and suffers alone in the desert, hungry and thirsty, and is tempted. What we're seeing on the top of the mountain is a different kind of Christ. Not the Christ who is humbled, who suffers. We are being given a glimpse of the future, where Christ is going, what he's going to achieve. We're getting a glimpse of the divine Christ. Jesus is a man, yes, he's finite. He's subject to the temptations and hungers and suffering that we are, we are prone to. But here he is revealing that he is something else. That he is divine. He is the son of God. He is God. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. He's probably thinking about Mount Sinai, where the Israelites put up shelters at the base of the mountain. But he doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't really know what is happening. They were so frightened. They're encountering in this new, transfigured, illuminated Christ something that overwhelms them. The divine Christ. The one who is not just an ordinary human being like us. Rudolf Otto wrote, he's a German theologian, he wrote a book about this idea, the transcendent divine Christ, called The Idea of the Holy what is the holiness of God? What is different about God from us? 
And he writes this. We are dealing with something for which there is only one appropriate expression. The mysterium tremendum. That's Latin for terrible mystery. We're dealing with the mysterium tremendum when we come into God's presence. The feeling of it may at times come sweeping like a gentle tide pervading the mind with a tranquil mood, tranquil mood of deepest worship. It may pass over into a more set and lasting attitude of the soul, continuing, as it were, thrilling, vibrant, and resonant, until at last it dies away and the soul resumes its profane, that is, non-religious mood of everyday experience. It has its crude barbaric antecedents and early manifestations, and again it may be developed into something beautiful, pure, and glorious. It may become the hushed, trembling, and speechless humility of the creature in the presence of whom, what? In the presence of that which is a mystery, inexpressible, and, be of all, and above all creatures and creation. That's what they're encountering. The aspect of Christ that is the infinite, omniscient, omnipresent God, who human minds can't comprehend, but can only get to know and have relationships with through love and trust, faith. So how do you talk about the Mysterium Tremendum? How do you talk about an experience like that that just terrified them? So I want to show you a picture. We, have, there we, we used to have a, a gentleman who came to our church, this is several years ago, called Francesco. And he was an artist. He was also homeless. And one of the ways we supported him was to buy some of his pictures. And uh, I bought this one. Now, it's a little too stylized and abstract for me. I don't actually like this picture. <laughs> but I want you to look at the eyes. This is why I bought the picture. Look at those eyes. You'll notice that those aren't human eyes. His eyes are the sky. This is the face of Christ, the human being who could stand in front of you. But in those eyes is infinity looking up at the heavens. This is the God who reveals himself in Jesus, but who is himself infinite, transcendent, perfectly holy, perfectly just, overwhelming. The one that appears and they get a glimpse of on top of that mountain. Let me just talk to you briefly about John. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that three of them are very, very similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke share many of the same stories. They look, they're called the synoptic Gospels, from the optic, the same eye. They're very similar. But one of the Gospels is completely different. That's the Gospel of John. This is how the Gospel of John begins. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The English uh, word, word there, is the Greek word logos, a rich word that means logic, meaning, purpose. John is saying, not that he just met a man in Jesus, but he met something, somebody, transcendent. Like Peter, John also wrote letters, and let me read you the beginning of his first letter. Remember how Peter talked about Jesus. We saw Jesus in his majesty and his glory, and he stood before us. Listen to how John describes the Jesus on top of that mountain. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our eyes have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Notice he doesn't refer to Jesus as he. Jesus is it. John, by the way, is the one that Jesus loved the most. Why would he do that? There's been a lot of speculation down through the ages. I think what we are seeing here is that John was the one who recognized that Jesus was not just an extraordinary human being. Jesus, uh, John was the one who recognized in the person of Jesus we are seeing infinities contained within Jesus are the infinities of God. And that somehow John recognized that. He didn't necessarily understand it, but he knew that he could love and trust and put his faith in what he saw in Jesus' eyes. He knew that in the person of Jesus was being revealed God. John knew it, and Jesus loved him for it. That is his particular relationship. Paul has a glimpse of it. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. So if what I'm saying is true, this is going to be every one of our experiences. One day, if you are a Christian, you will stand and see Jesus face to face. And he's going to be glorious. He'll still be a human being, and he's going to be glorious. But you are also, in him, going to encounter the infinite, transcendent God, creator of all things. And you will be terrified. Every time God shows up in the Bible, everybody's terrified. And you will be terrified, and I will be terrified, except for one thing. When we remember that he loves us, and that we can put our faith in that love. That is the only connection a finite creature can have with the infinite, the transcendent. It is the only resource and the only way that we will be able to stand there. And that's why human life 
is really the journey into that faith. Learning to trust that God loves you. Learning through prayer and worship that you can be in relationship with that love. We're all on a journey. We're all going up that mountain. And one day we will meet the one at the top of the mountain. And the only thing that we will have left is our confidence and our faith that he loves us and he wants us there with him. It's the only thing we have. That's why faith is the essence of Christianity. Because there is nothing else, no other resource, nothing that you can point to in that moment that will allow you to be in relationship with the one who has infinity right there in his eyes. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And they were coming down the mountain. Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. He's taken them up the mountain. He's given them a glimpse of the future and the reality of who he is. But now, as he comes down the mountain, it's back to business. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is perfect and holy. But he becomes, is transformed into a human being so he can go to the cross and die in our place. And they still don't understand that. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. They still have no glimpse of the resurrection. But now they have a glimpse of the future. So I'm going to end with a final little story. Um, I was taught by members of this congregation how to fly fish. I'm not terribly good at it. And fly fishing is the stupidest way to try to catch fish ever invented. Um, but one beautiful thing about being a fly fisherman is you get to stand in the river. And the river is a beautiful place to be. And oftentimes, you'll see these clouds of flies. Uh, they rise from the water, and they congregate in the sun. And they're beautiful. They're golden in the, in the sunlight. They come out in the morning and the evening. Well, I just want you to consider for a moment the journey that those flies went on. They start off uh, as nymphs on, in the muck at the bottom of the river cold, dark, isolated, clinging to the bottom of rocks, afraid of the trout, afraid of the rushing turbulent water. And then some subtle signal triggers them, and they begin a metamorphosis. And the caddises become lava, and inside the lava, they are transformed. And then one perfect day, they release themselves, and they, they are carried by the water, float up to the surface, they float there, and their skins pop open, and revealed is this beautiful fly. They have to stretch their wings out, never been used before, and hope that a trout doesn't eat them. By the way, that brief moment is what fly fishing is all about, and the reason it's such a stupid way to try to catch fish, because it doesn't happen very often, it's very quick. So there they are. They've come from the muck, they get to the surface, they metamorphize into flies, and they take off from the surface for one brief moment. 
and they, they collect above the river in the sunshine, and it looks like they dance with each other. They're actually mating. It's a mating dance. They mate, and they, they die. What a journey. Think about that journey. Alone in the muck under a rock under a cold river, and in a single day, they go from that solitary existence out of the muck, through the water, metamorphize into a fly, and gather. And when they do, they gather in these communities, like golden moats. They're just beautiful to see. What a beautiful journey. Who wouldn't want to make such a journey? Who wouldn't want to go from the muck up to the light? But how many flies do you suppose in the light would want to do the journey in the opposite direction? To go from the light to the cold, dark solitude at the bottom of a river. Jesus transfigured on the top of the mountain is showing us his nature. This is how he is. This is how he was. This is his natural state. But he gave it all up. The infinite God became a finite human being, gave up all his prerogatives, all his glory, allowed himself to be humiliated and persecuted and suffer. Eventually, on the cross, he dies and is put in a grave. That's the journey that Jesus is taking when he comes down that mountain. Why did he do that? So we could go up the mountain. So that death would not have a hold on us. So the limitations, the suffering, the pain of this broken world would not define us anymore. We are destined for a reality and a future in the light. And that is only because Jesus was willing to give up the light and come down in the darkness with us. That's why we worship him, because he did that for us. And by the way, in worshiping in him, and spending time in prayer with him, we are preparing ourselves for one day meet him on the top of that mountain. That's what worship and prayer are all about. We are getting used to being in the presence of the infinite God. Beautiful, perfect, eternal. And when we have a relationship with him, when we recognize what he's done for us, we're going to join him forever. In a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's table where we celebrate this relationship. Think what you're doing when you're eating and drinking. You are eating and drinking the body of Christ. You are becoming him, like him. Yes, it's a celebration, but it's also a spiritual reality. And as you eat and drink in faith on what Christ has done for you, that tr transformation, that metamorphosis is happening within you. And you are being prepared for that meeting. Jesus gave up everything and became like us so that we would receive everything. That's the central exchange of Christianity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that through Christ, you have revealed yourself to us fully.
more than that, Lord, that through Christ you give us a new life, a transformed, transfigured life, a life in your light forever. Lord, help us never forget that. Never take for granted the fact that we are Christians. Remember always the mysterium tremendum, the great miracle that you care for us at all. We thank you that you do. And we pray, Lord, for that day that we will see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.